Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Amen. Do you remember when Jesus was born? Time flies. Feels like it was just a few months ago that a choir of angels was singing out to the shepherds in the hills. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. And today, as this grown man rides into Jerusalem, a choir of disciples sings out a variation on the theme. Peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of the more thoughtful and reasonable people in the crowd are a little taken aback. They try to reason with the man. Teacher, order your disciples to stop. Don't you know that Passover is near? Don't you know that Pontius Pilate is coming? Don't you know that he always brings extra soldiers up this time of year because he wants to make sure that our people don't confuse our ancient Passover story of liberation from Egypt with our modern dream of liberation from Rome? Look, we're learned men. We understand the whole donkey thing. You're not the only one who's read the prophet Zechariah when he says, lo, your king comes to you triumphant and riding on a donkey. We get it. But you don't have to be so obvious. These guys don't have to be shouting that you're the king for all the Roman sympathizers to hear. If they hear you saying that you're the king, if they think you're trying to ride into Jerusalem at the head of some ragtag army of Galileans, they're not just going to let it slide. They won't think the donkey is fun. There's no whimsy with the Romans. There's no freedom of assembly. Don't you understand? This isn't going to end well for you. Don't you understand? I picture Jesus thinking, when the disciples stay silent, the very stones will cry out. And a week from this morning, when the disciples have been left speechless and afraid by what's happened, it'll be just quiet enough for them to understand the message of the stone that's rolled away. But that's next Sunday, and we have a long way to go before then. I like to think that maybe Jesus took the Pharisees' advice. Or maybe it was part of his plan all along. But the very next thing that Jesus does on the same day that he enters Jerusalem is to go to the temple and declare that he is not a rebel. He is not a revolutionary. He is not, and happy Patriots Day, by the way, but he is not a minute man. (laughs) It's a part of this story that usually gets lost in translation. Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Many of us, when we hear this phrase, den of robbers, imagine that the problem is that people are doing business in the temple, that this temple sales and money changing must somehow be exploitative, and that Jesus is condemning this exploitation, and by extension, the high priest Caiaphas and the other religious authorities who, because they're robbing the people, are a den of robbers. But that isn't what Jesus says, is it? In fact, the image doesn't even really work because a den of robbers isn't a place where robbers go to rob people. It's a place where robbers go to hang out after they've done a hard day's highway banditry. The problem isn't that the temple and its system are robbing people. The problem is that the temple is a place where robbers feel comfortable and aren't challenged. And here's the really important part. A den of robbers maybe isn't the best way to put it at all. A better translation might be a cavern of bandits, or even better, and more to the point, a cave of insurgents. Because that's what Jesus is really talking about. The word bandit, which we translate here robber, 
is really a word that the Romans used as a kind of code for anyone trying to organize armed resistance. They weren't a freedom fighter or a revolutionary. They were just some bandit, outlaw. So when the high priests and the temple guards come to arrest Jesus on Thursday night, he says to them, have you come out to me with swords and clubs as though you're approaching a bandit? I'm not going to fight back against you. I don't really have an army. I'm just not that kind of king. I'm the prince of peace. But the Romans don't understand who Jesus is, and so on Good Friday we see him on the hill of Calvary with two bandits, one on either side. I think the Romans might have said it was just three bandits that day. So the Pharisees maybe are correct in their political analysis. If Jesus keeps this up, it won't end well. The Romans hear Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, and they misunderstand. They hear his disciples singing, blessed is the king, and they misunderstand. They ask him, are you the king of the Jews? And when he answers, you say so, they completely miss the point that he's trying to make. They think that he's trying to organize a coup, and they respond accordingly. There's a New Testament scholar named Tom Wright, who was a bishop in the Church of England, Bishop of Durham, for a few years. And he's written about 7,000 books. But one of his most recent ones is called The Day That the Revolution Began. It's about Holy Week. And he means the day the revolution began in a very specific sense. He says, ever since that opening sermon in Nazareth, Jesus has been telling people things most of them didn't want to hear. They wanted a rabble-rousing, let's go bash the Romans, nationalist kind of leader. But Jesus went around healing people, talking about a few seeds producing a lot of fruit, talking about leaven, leavening bread. It's not exactly flashy political rhetoric. It's because Jesus could see more clearly than most of his contemporaries, right, writes, that Israel was poised on a knife edge. One false move, one classic piece of anti-Roman activism, and the Romans would come and stamp on the nation once and for all. And that's what Jesus predicts in today's gospel. Not one stone will be left upon another. But Jesus is desperate to save his people. He wants to go ahead and take the full force of Rome's anger onto himself. And anyone who follows him will find that this way of Jesus' self-giving peace is an escape for them from destruction. But if they don't follow, it's not going to end well. Still, nobody understands. They think that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, the royal city, to seize the throne by force, to establish himself as king, and they couldn't be more wrong. Jesus isn't trying to overthrow the powers and principalities of this world at all or at least not in the way that they think. Okay, so disclaimer. This is exactly like the part of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, where Harry walks back into the forest to face Voldemort alone. I didn't include a disclaimer about spoiling the plot of the end of this book at the 8 a.m. service because it came out 12 years ago when I was advised by Kate, by Jenny, and by two landscapers that I did not need to. And then... I ruined poor Evans Huber's morning, who is only, God bless him, on book three. So if you haven't read this book or seen this movie, I advise you, you're welcome to walk out and come back in three minutes, or simply to cover your ears. But we're at the stage of Harry Potter's journey where there's a climactic battle between good and evil. Voldemort is besieging Hogwarts, trying finally to capture his foe, Harry Potter, who's thwarted him since the beginning of Harry's little life. And there's a brief pause in the fighting while the two sides regroup. Then Harry has a realization. He's been on the run for most of book seven in a rather boring way. And now he can't let anyone else suffer for him. He decides 
that he can't let his friends get hurt trying to protect him. And so he walks into the forest to face Voldemort. And like his mother before him, he finds that the power of self-sacrificing love triumphs over even the most horrible evil in the end. If Jesus' goal was to reestablish an independent state with himself as Messiah and King for his people, then he was a total, but not a catastrophic failure. He didn't come even close to succeeding, but at least he didn't bring too many other people down with him. And if Jesus' goal was only to bring a message of love and compassion from which we will all still be learning 2,000 years later, then the events that we're about to experience this Holy Week are an unfortunate tragedy. After all, if he had lived a few more years, maybe he would have written some good sermons, he could have clarified some questions that we're wondering about today, and his message would have spread more widely. But what if, just what if, Jesus' ultimate enemy wasn't really the religious authorities or the Roman Empire? What if Jesus, as he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, is preparing himself not for a trial before Caiaphas or Pontius Pilate, but for a face-to-face meeting with all the forces of evil and death themselves. If Easter is just a fairy tale, if Jesus' death and resurrection are just parables from which we have to extract some kind of deeper spiritual meaning for our lives today, then I'm not sure that Palm Sunday is worth celebrating with a parade and a beautiful, beautiful anthem. But if, and I can't believe these words are about to come out of my mouth, by the way, but if Jesus is our Harry Potter, If Jesus is the one who faces death itself to free us from our death, if, in other words, Jesus' death and resurrection actually changed something about the world beyond just spreading the message that he came to bring, then Palm Sunday is our final opportunity to cheer him on. So blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Amen.